now transition from a time of praying together to a time of reading and studying God's Word as He teaches us more about prayer. I'd ask that you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke today, getting into chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel as we continue, really, a theme that Jesus began uh, and will conclude in the beginning of this chapter as He speaks of the day when the Son of Man will return, when He comes And what shall he find upon the earth? And he will teach us today, as we hear from his word, about faithful and persistent prayer. Today we'll be studying together Luke chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read to the end of verse 8 together. You can find that on page 877, if you happen to have most ESVs. Page 877, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, and reading to the end of verse 8. Before we read this word, let's go again to the Lord and seek his blessing upon our study together. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you who spoke light into the darkness have spoke by your Holy Spirit to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. O Lord, we pray that as we hear and read your word together today, that you would cause us to see some of the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, and to turn to you, to always pray and to not lose heart, to be your people who cry out to you. Help us, O Lord. Give us your spirit to make it so, we ask, as we read and study. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? As far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he bless our reading and study of it together today. Uh, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, who once wrote that everything, everything, he says, we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. I'm sure there are Christians who would disagree with that. All right, there, there are Christians uh, who, who seem to be particularly blessed with that gift of intercession. And there are times in all of our lives, praise the Lord, there are times and seasons of our faith when, when prayer seems natural. It seems easy. It, it seems almost exciting at times. And that's a wonderful blessing when the Lord gives it to us. But, but the difficulty of prayer echoes through all the best Christian writers of all the centuries of the church. It is a theme that shows up over and over again. 
But we like to tell ourselves, the, the way that one uh, theologian put it, he said that prayer is as easy as talking to our closest friend. And yet, uh, our experience shows us that it's seldom that simple. Very often, prayer is difficult work. And honest Christians will tell you that the difficulty lies in the one who's doing the praying. It's our fault, actually, why, why prayer is so hard. And Scripture tells us that, and, and our experience tells us that. Scripture tells us about the difficulty, it says, in, in Romans 8, that we don't know what we ought to pray for, or what to pray for as we ought. We come to prayer unprepared. We come to prayer disconnected from our real spiritual need. And that means that, that prayer is the kind of thing that we can only begin by admitting that we don't know how to do it. And many of us don't want to start there. So there's the difficulty of not knowing uh, how to begin. There, there's the difficulty of our unbelief. We live in a tangible world. We live in a world of balancing budgets and, and buying groceries and sitting through one more meeting. And to our feeble faith, prayer sometimes feels like an exercise in inactivity. There is the problem of our distraction. Vance Havner said that any housewife knows the best way to remember the things she meant to do and forgot is to start praying. Well, I add to all those difficulties the fact that when we pray, seldom do we receive exactly what we've asked for in exactly the way we've asked for it at exactly the time that we thought it should be given to us. And it's up to us to do the praying, but it's up to God to do the answering, and it's the problem of our impatience that makes it difficult to wait for the things that we're praying for. In these verses, I think Jesus is preparing his people for the difficulty of prayer. Specifically, he is preparing us for the difficulty of waiting while we pray for things that God himself has told us to pray for. Our Father, who art in heaven, Thy kingdom come. You notice the fact that this sandwich is, or this, this sandwich, this passage is sandwiched. Excuse me, I'm hungry. Uh, you, you'll notice the fact that this passage is sandwiched between this passage that we read last week, verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 30, that speaks of the day that the Son of Man will be revealed. It's sandwiched between that and then in verse 8, uh, the question of the state of our faith when the Son of Man comes. And what will he find on the earth? The context for this passage is Christ's second return, his second advent. And in that context, Luke tells us exactly what the point of these verses is, right there in verse 1. He tells us that Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. One commentator said the key is already in the lock. It's simple. We don't have to wonder what Christ wants for us here. He wants us always to pray and not lose heart while we wait for his return. Perhaps we could put it a different way, and we could say that until Christ returns, we ought to pray with persistence, and we ought to pray without discouragement. Those will be our two points today, that until Christ returns, we ought to pray with persistence, and we ought to pray without discouragement. Now, we have a hint uh, toward this first point. If you, you just look, depending on the, the Bible translation that you're using, you know this parable either as 
named after one of the two uh, characters in this passage. You know it either as the parable of the unjust judge or you know it as the parable uh, of the persistent widow, and that's the way the ESV goes. It's a story about a woman who is in need, and it's a story about a scoundrel judge who will not give her what she needs until she makes herself an annoyance. It's the kind of thing we imagine might have been commonplace. All too common in courts where there was no, no sense of a due process of law. In courts where judgments could be, could be bought and sold to the highest briber. We're not told who this woman's adversary is. We're not told exactly what kind of, of justice she was after, but we know that in Israel, widows were, well, they were the people who were easy picking. They seemed to attract con men to them who wanted to, to swoop in and devour their inheritance and their household and their livelihood. They were like limping gazelles in the midst of a pride of lions. But not much has changed. There are already those email scams out there telling your aunts and your grandmothers that they can sign up for priority access to the COVID vaccine if only they will send their check full of money to some P.O. box in Montana. And we're always watching out for those that that want to scam the elderly, the, the widows, those who have no one to vouch for them, no one to advocate for them. Nothing has changed. And that was the situation here, especially in Israel. If a woman had uh, no sons, if a widow had no sons, she had nobody to come to her aid, most likely. Certainly not in the law courts. Because her voice didn't matter much, and and other women's voices didn't matter much, and she needed a man, a protector, to come alongside her. And if she had no one to help her, she was all alone if she was defrauded. And so the law of Moses, you remember, lumps uh, widows together with the fatherless, uh, together with the refugees, those who have no protector but God, who, who have no resources but his mercy. And God's not subtle about this. Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 to 24 you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. The Lord takes this very seriously. So what should have been a, a very simple court case turned into this protracted struggle against uh, corruption. It became a standoff between this godless judge and this woman who was armed only with persistence. That was the only weapon that she had. And so verse 3 says, she kept coming over and over again. She kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. She kept coming to the judge each time making the same request, each time pleading for the relief that she couldn't secure for herself. It shouldn't have been like this. And it didn't need to be like this. And it wouldn't have been like this if only this judge were halfway worth his title. Twice in the parable, uh, we see, and in fact, even once from the man's own lips, uh, in verse 4, we find that the man is uh, someone who neither fears God nor respects man. Now, his, his lack of respect for man could mean one of two things. It could mean that, uh, that he is shameless. 
That he's a person who doesn't respect other people's opinions. He doesn't care about what other people have to say about him. Or it could mean that he's simply ruthless. He doesn't care about other people's needs. Not that he's no respecter of persons, but he doesn't respect persons, and he has no respect for persons. He doesn't care about anybody but himself, and given the context, it seems like that is exactly what we ought to take from him. He's ruthless. He has no love for his neighbor, and he has no fear of God. That's something we recognize immediately. That's biblical terminology, and we recognize immediately with biblical terminology that that is something that points him out as completely unqualified to render judgment in Israel. About nine centuries before Jesus told this parable, it was, it was good King Jehoshaphat, and he set up the office of judge in every city in Israel. And part of his reforms in the nation, it was meant to be a ministry to the people. It was a good thing for those who had inquiries and cases. They could go right there to every major city, and they would find some God-fearing man who would help them find justice. In 2 Chronicles 19, Jehoshaphat charges those men that he appoints as judge, and this is what he says, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. He repeats it later, let the, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. There is no injustice with the Lord our God, no partiality or taking bribes. That's what a judge was supposed to be. Now, this man is a self-professed reprobate. He has no fear of God. He has no love for neighbor. He has no concern for anyone outside himself. He is the very antithesis of what a judge was supposed to be in Israel. And it makes you wonder how many times this woman had to come with her plea for justice before this man realized that she was not going to go away. The story is told Apparently it's true. Sometimes, sometime in the late 90s, there was a rancher uh, who lived uh, outside of Powder Bluff, Colorado. And he subscribed to National Geographic magazine, but his subscription was about to run out, and so it was time for his renewal notice, except the computer that, uh, that maintained the mailing list for National Geographic had a malfunction and sent him 9,734 separate renewal notices. And so the rancher drove 10 miles to the nearest post office. He took an envelope and he sent in his money and he sent in a note that says, I give up, send me your magazine. It's the same idea here. I doubt that this woman asked 10,000 times, but maybe it sure felt that way to the man who was, who was being asked by this widow. In fact, he uses this language that, that was used in, in, in boxing terminology of the day in verse 5. It actually talks about giving someone a black eye. He says in verse 5, Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She was persistent. And her persistence steadily eroded his hard-hearted unrighteousness. And in the end, he gave her justice, even though it was only to secure a little bit of peace for himself, only to get her off his back. Well, so far, the story's pretty simple. Jesus wants us to pray with persistence. Jesus told this parable so that we would always pray and not lose heart. I think we can find some parallels between uh, this persistent widow, between uh, her asking for justice and, and our prayer life, actually. For one, uh, like this widow, God's people are waiting for justice. 
Consider the context. Chapter 17, the day that the Son of Man will be revealed, the day that the kingdom comes in its fullness, the day that is spoken of in the previous chapter, if you were here last week, in terms of judgment, cataclysm, this event that is going to sweep away all the wickedness of the earth, just as the fire of God swept away, devoured Sodom and Gomorrah, just as the flood in Noah's day swept away and destroyed all the breath of everything that had breath of its, uh, the breath of life in its nostrils upon the earth. The day of, of Christ's return is going to be a day of judgment. And it's always been seen as a day of judgment. Terrible, terrible, fearful judgment upon the wicked. But the day of Christ has also been recognized as a day when God will return. When he will bring judgment for his people. Not just judgment against the wicked, but vindication for his people. That's the language that often shows up. That it's judgment against the wicked, it's judgment for God's people who have trusted in him. That's how Paul puts it in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He writes that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There's a day of justice that's coming. And until that day, just like this widow, God's people are waiting for justice. And just like this widow, we have only one source of true justice to seek out. There was nobody to, to advocate for this woman. There was nobody to help her, no one to stand in the law court. She had to go herself to the judge. She had to ask again and again for justice against her adversary. Now, the word that's used for, for justice in this passage. It shows up only a few other places in the New Testament, just a handful. And one of the places that it shows up, most notably, it shows up in the prayer for vengeance, for justice, that shows up on the lips of God's martyrs in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. You remember that passage. Many arrayed in white robes gathered around the throne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? That's a prayer that we pray together with these martyrs. We pray it every week when we gather together, and we pray for our brothers and sisters who are being slaughtered around the world because of their faith. Just in the last two months, what have we been praying for? Well, we've, we've prayed for a murdered pastor in Burkina Faso. We've prayed for raped Christian women in Uganda. We have prayed for imprisoned Christian ministries, missionaries excuse me, in Kazakhstan. We have prayed for homeless Christian converts in Colombia. That's not the whole list. And yes, there are magistrates, there are judges in those countries. There are police forces, there are government systems in various states of disarray, and I suppose we could take our request to them. We could become Christian rights activists. We could speak loudly for those who do not have a voice, and maybe, by the grace of God, something would change. Maybe these worldly regimes who do not fear God and do not respect his people would be worn down by our insistence that they need to give justice to God's people, that they need to give vindication for those who are being forced from their homes, 
and beaten in city squares and left for dead as a sign to the rest of the Christians in their village. Maybe we could go to those judges and those magistrates. But there only is one true judge who can give lasting justice to his persecuted people. And so we must cry to him. Day and night, we cry to him. And so like the widow, we persist. It's a mark of our election, actually. It's a mark that we are God's people, that we continue crying out. That's what Jesus says, that God's chosen ones cry to him day and night. They pray their big prayers, and they, they pray their little prayers. And they pray their thanksgivings, and they, they pray their confessions, and they pray their petitions, and they pray their longing intercessions. And God's people keep on praying. We persist in it. We do not give up the habit of prayer. We keep praying in the time between Christ's advents. We cry out for relief. We cry for vindication when he returns. We keep on praying because God has taught us, he has told us to pray with persistence. How long, O Lord? Thy kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we pray with persistence until he comes. But if that's all we take away from this passage, we'll, we'll miss all of the comfort that is here. Christ taught this parable so that we would always pray and not lose heart. And that means that until Christ comes, we ought to pray without discouragement. Last summer, I, I read the autobiography of a retired Navy SEAL by the name of David Goggins. David Goggins takes everything that you expect in a Navy SEAL and he doubles it, he triples it. He is a man living to the extreme. He is full of everything you expect. He is full to the teeth with, with grit and profanity and, and self-drive and persistence in everything he does. Since the, he uh, retired from active duty, David Goggins became a, a, an ultra-marathon runner. In 2006, he finished fifth overall in the Badwater 135. The Badwater 135 is a 135-mile foot race through Death Valley, California in the middle of July. This is the kind of person we're dealing with, right? He, he's driven to the extreme. His philosophy of life is about mental toughness and resolve. And recently, I heard another interview with David Goggins, and he said that if you want to get to where you want to be in life, you need to commit to a mindset of doing all the things you don't want to do. That probably works in ultramarathoning. It probably works to become a Navy SEAL. That's probably exactly what you have to do. But the problem is that when we begin to talk about persistence in prayer, many people hear something that sounds like the gospel of David Goggins. It sounds like a bootstrap spirituality where we have to, to reach down and pull hard. It sounds like God is something like a drill instructor who's always charging us and pushing us to go farther and to pray harder and to intercede better. And it doesn't matter if you feel like praying. It doesn't matter if you feel motivated to pray. It doesn't matter what you feel if God is listening to you or not. You just got to keep going. Jesus told this parable not just so that we would keep praying, but so that we would keep praying without discouragement. 
so that we don't lose heart, Luke says in verse 1. Now, this is the same language. Again, you, you get the sense that this is one of those places where, where Luke and all of his interaction with Paul is beginning to rub off on him because this is also language that only Paul uses elsewhere in the New Testament, this idea of not losing heart. It's an idea that, that Paul uses anytime he presents the struggles of his faith against the backdrop of the glory of the gospel. Ephesians 3 is, is a wonderful example where Paul there, in the beginning of Ephesians 3, is starting to talk about his imprisonment on behalf of the Gentiles, the things that he is suffering. And as Paul often does, he gets swept into praise. He gets swept into adoration of the gospel and the Lord of the gospel. And by verse 12, he's talking about Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then immediately, the next verse, he concludes, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. The idea is that if you could only grasp, if you could only understand the spiritual realities that are happening behind the scene, there would be no reason for despair. No reason for discouragement. Yes, Paul's in chains, but he's not, he's not cast down. Paul is facing hardship, but he has not lost heart. And as we wait, as we pray for Christ's return, we have the same gospel reasons for joy and encouragement in our prayer. When we think about coming to the Lord, it's about the Lord giving us boldness and access and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will know that if we know the God to whom we're praying with our persistent prayers. In fact, that is where most people begin to go wrong with this passage where we misinterpret it, because once we have drawn some parallels between the church and this widow, we're tempted, even though it seems wrong, to draw some parallels between God and this judge. Everything in the passage actually is, is pushing against it. He is this, this unrighteous man, Jesus says. He is this wicked man, and yet this is what people do. And we, we begin to think that maybe God is like this judge, and that means that if he's going to hear me, if he's going to give me what I need, I need to speak loudly enough that he can hear me. And maybe God will just ignore me for a time, just to, just to show me what it is to keep pressing harder. Because remember, God is that He's that, uh, that drill instructor. And that's what maybe God is doing with our prayers. J.C. Ryle quotes what he called a, a strange and monstrous view, one of the attempts to squeeze God into the other half of this parable. He said it was the view. Some people said that this description of the judge also fits God because God is one who does not need to fear the Lord, and he himself is no respecter of man's persons. And that's one attempt, but we do it all the time. We, we try to figure out, well, maybe this is what we should take away, that we're like the widow and God is like this judge. That is not the point of the passage. If we take it that way, we get it all backwards. In fact, this passage makes its point through a contrast. It's not teaching us that we have to keep praying because God is just like this. It's teaching us that we can keep praying because God is far better than this. This passage works an awful lot like Jesus' other teaching about prayer back in chapter 11. And there, Jesus came to the conclusion of his teaching about prayer, about, about another parable, about someone going and asking, uh, even asking somebody who didn't want to give what they were asking for. And he ends in, in chapter 11 by saying, If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? That's the crux. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The phrase doesn't show up, but chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, this is another how much more parable. If persistence from an unnamed widow squeezed justice out of this tight-fisted man, how much more? How much more will God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them, he asks. Will God stop his ears to the prayers of his children? We ignore the saints for whom Christ died. Will God use prayer as a, as a tool to rub our nose in our sin, to remind us of how much we actually don't deserve his mercy and his help in our time of need? Is that the God that Scripture presents to us? Is that the God who sent his Son to become our peace? To give us access to himself by the Spirit? Dear friends, in your persistence and in your prayers, don't forget who God is and who you're praying to. He is the God of electing grace. He's the God who has chosen a particular people for himself before he ever laid the foundations of creation. He's the God who's given us the gift of faith to pray to him in the first place. And through that faith, he has given us the gift of being made his children, of becoming heirs together with Christ of all of his promises. He is the God in whom there is no injustice and with whom there is no shadow of change. He is the God from whom all blessings flow. He is the God, says one, Psalm 145, who is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. And so take heart, dear brothers and sisters. Our prayer is not an attempt to, to speak so that God will listen to us. It's not an attempt to pester him enough that like a parent with a child who's always tugging at the, at the hem, he finally says, all right, finally, I'll give you what you're asking for. Our persistent prayer isn't, isn't an opportunity to conjole him into listening to us. It is the blessing of realizing that he already hears us. And will not God give justice to his elect? I tell you, he will give justice speedily. Truth be told, it doesn't always feel very speedy from our vantage point. And that brings us back to the problem of our impatience, doesn't it? Because while we're praying for Christ to return, while we're praying for God to heal our sick children, while we're praying for God to to mend our broken relationships, while we're praying for God to mortify our sinful tendencies, by our watch, by our clock, every moment seems like an excruciating eternity while we're waiting for God. But that's not a reason to be discouraged in our prayer. Rather to remember that in our, our short-sighted view, we often make mistakes, don't we? While we wait, we often mistake God's patience for slowness. We often mistake God's delay for inactivity. We often mistake God's providence for a crisis. 
John Calvin said, if, if we could penetrate into the design of God's providence, we would learn that his assistance is always seasonable, as the case demands. It's not delayed for a single moment, but it comes at the exact time that he has determined. The idea here is not that it comes immediately, but that it comes swiftly. That when God's help is set to arrive by his timetable, not ours, even that day that no one knows but the Father, when Christ will return, it'll happen all at once. It won't delay for a second, for a moment longer than it ought to. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. So, dear friends, if you know the Savior who is speaking to you in these verses, well, you can pray with persistence. And you can pray without discouragement. And that actually is what Christ is going to be looking for when he returns. You know, Jesus told this parable in the style of all the best stories. We have a few literary people in our congregation, and you know that all the best stories have two things going for them. They have tension and they have conflict. And this parable has tension and conflict. It has the drama of, uh, of an unanswered question. It's a problem seeking a resolution. And so for three verses, we ask ourselves, is this woman going to receive justice? Is it even possible? How could it happen? And then when the tension is resolved, when justice comes by persistence, we all breathe a sigh of relief for her. And Jesus turns and asks another question, more tension, more conflict. And the question is, what do you think? Is this how God deals with his people? Does he keep them waiting unnecessarily? Will he give justice to his elect? And we don't have time to wrestle with the tension before Jesus answers, no, he will give justice to them speedily. But then at the end, notice, there's another question. And this time there is no answer. And this is what he wants us to wrestle with. We know that God calls for persistence in the prayers of his people. We know that we can take heart in his willingness to answer, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And if he does, what will it look like? Well, it'll look like professions of faith. It'll look like children standing and being admitted to the Lord's table. It'll look like deeds of love and mercy. It will look like Christians unashamed to stand for Christ in the public square. It'll look like worshipers gathering each Lord's day in his name. But most of all, I think, it'll look like people who keep on praying and do not lose heart. This is what Christ is calling us to. Not prayer that, that thinks that we need to move God, but prayer that wants to continue walking in faith until he moves. And so he wants us to pray with persistence, but he also wants us to pray without discouragement. Dear brothers and sisters, always keep praying. Do not lose heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord and God, we ask that you would give us a spirit of prayer, a spirit of persistence, a spirit of joy in knowing that you hear the call and the prayer of your children. Give us faith, O oh Lord, that will keep us coming to you over and over and resting in your providential care. O oh Lord, until that day that you come again, 
Make us faithful to cry out to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.